Well, welcome back to week two of our sermon series called Lured. Uh, as we talk about fighting temptation, the picture that we're using is that of a fishing hook with bait on it. And as you can imagine, if a fish sees a worm uh, and it goes for it and gets hooked on it, um, it might look good at the time, but eventually it leads to their pain and death. And the same is true with temptation. Uh, we understand that there are so many people in this room facing so many different temptations out there. And your temptation, it might feel good for a while, it might taste good for a while, but eventually it leads to pain and possibly even death. So we need to learn how to stay away from this temptation. So, what then are your temptations? What are your spiritual blind spots and weaknesses? It might be pretty obvious from my muscly physique, but uh, back in the day, I played a little bit of high school football. Pretty obvious, right? And I wasn't very good at it, and I was a lineman. But anyways, we'd go to practice every week to prepare for the games, and we'd go to practice, but we'd also do something else. At least once a week, they would gather us all together in this small room where we would watch the shaky VHS of the last game that we played. And the coach would point out some good things that we did and some areas of improvements, some, some ways to get better. So why would we do this? Well, we'd do anything uh, for the Fox Valley Foxes to get the edge over the Clintonville truckers. We would do anything to do that. And uh, just the idea of looking at your blind spots and seeing how you could get better. And that's just high school football, but from what I can tell, um, that when you get to a professional level, there are players that spend hours and hours every single week studying game footage to see the areas they need to improve on, and they study their opponents and try and find uh, their weaknesses, all so they can come up with a strategy to get the victory. So let's take a step back from football, and let me ask you this question. If you were Satan... What strategy would you use to destroy your faith? Last week we talked about how Satan is the father of lies. He will do and say anything to destroy your faith. So if you were Satan and you had the game tape of your whole life and you could look at every single time where you had fallen into temptation, what strategy would you use to try and destroy your faith? If you watched that game footage of your life where every time you fell into temptation, I bet you would notice some patterns. Maybe you would notice a pattern of the same sin that you're struggling with over and over and over again. Maybe you'd notice that the temptation that you're facing today is the same temptation that you faced when you were a teenager. Maybe you'd notice that you fall into temptation around the same time of day every day. Maybe you notice that when you fall into temptation, it happens a whole lot more when you're tired or hungry or angry or lonely or sad. If you're Satan trying to come up with a strategy to destroy your faith, what strategy would you use? Would you keep using that same temptation that's been working on you over and over again? Would you give yourself a false sense of invincibility where you tell yourself, I've been a Christian for such a long time, I could never lose my faith. Would you switch it up? Would you throw a new temptation in there? What, what, what strategy would you use to destroy your faith? Today we're going to look at a case study from the Bible about a time where Satan's strategy worked. It worked on a man named Judas Iscariot. And when you picture Judas in your mind, 
I have a feeling that even if you're brand new to church, you haven't been to church in a very long time, you've probably heard of Judas Iscariot before. And when you picture Judas, what does he look like? Does he look something kind of like this? Like this dark, shadowy figure? I think that's kind of how I pictured Judas growing up. You know, a dark, shadowy figure. Maybe he has like some little devil horns on him. Maybe you kind of picture him as like that creepy guy in that big white van that's offering free candy to children. Uh, you know, like just like a really bad guy. But as you read through the Bible, as I, as I did this last week, and read the account of Judas again, it became pretty clear that Judas probably looked just like a good guy, a good church-going guy, a disciple of Jesus, uh, because he was. Uh, for many years, he followed Jesus. He had a better preacher than you and I do. He got to sit at the very feet of Jesus. Judas had the best teacher in the world. Judas went to the best seminary. Judas had the best small group Bible study experience. He got to learn directly from Jesus. He got to hear that message over and over again. And Judas got to put that message into action as well. Because Jesus sent his disciples off on mission trips. And we can assume that Judas went on those mission trips as well and did great things and helped many people. This was a man who followed Jesus for many years. He got to hear the good message over and over again. He got to put that message into action. And still, something led to him losing his faith. Something led to Judas giving up his faith and dying an unbeliever. So how did that happen? What strategy did Satan use? I have a quote here from uh, my pastor in Milwaukee. He was a pastor who I really looked up to. His name was Pastor James Hine. And this is what he says about how Satan uses temptation. He says, American mythology and folklore about Satan has misunderstood his modus operandi for a long time. He doesn't attack you in haunted houses. He attacks you by capturing your imagination with the perfect house this side of heaven. He doesn't frighten with pitchfork and horns. He entices with angelic beauty. He doesn't hold out rotten, worm-filled fruit. He holds out fruit that is good for food and pleasing to the eye. So lots of times today when people picture Satan, uh, you, you think of like this guy with pitchfork and um, little red guy. I don't know. And, but normally, Satan doesn't uh, send temptations in the form of big, scary demons or try and terrify you that way. Instead... He tries to make this world look so good that you think the things of this world are better than what God could offer you. And that was certainly the case for Judas as well. Judas's main temptation that he continued to struggle with was his love of money. He got to spend time with Jesus, but he also knew money. He thought that money could give him happiness that Jesus never could. He thought that money could give him security that Jesus never could. He thought that money could give him the life that Jesus never could. And in that love of money, um, it led to his downfall. And this is the first lure I want to show you. The first lure of temptation that we often face is that sin is no big deal. Sin is no big deal. Let me give you a couple examples of how this plays out in our lives. Let's take first uh, somebody that's struggling with the sin of pornography. What would they tell themselves? Well, it's no big deal. There's nothing wrong with just looking. I'm not hurting anyone else. It's no big deal. 
What about the sin of drunkenness? Well, drinking too much with my friends on the weekend, nothing wrong with that. I have a designated driver. I'll just do it this one time. It'll be fun. Or what about the sin of gossip? You tell yourself, I'm not gossiping. I'm just telling an amusing story to my friends. See, we have these ways of convincing ourselves that the sin that I'm struggling with, it's not that big a deal. I can keep living however I want to live because no big deal. It's so small. We have ways of justifying it to ourselves. And this was the first lure that worked on Judas. Satan whispered to Judas, telling him that his temptation with money was no big deal. See, Judas was the guy that got to carry the money bag for Jesus and his disciples. And he would take a little bit of money out of it for himself. And he probably justified it to himself. He probably said, well, I'm the treasurer, so I should get a little bit for being a treasurer. I'm not taking the whole money bag. I'm just taking a little bit. I'm sure he told himself that this sin was no big deal. And later there's another story about Judas where there's this woman that brings this really expensive jar of perfume and breaks it and pours it on top of Jesus. And Judas says, why would you do that? You could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. And if someone would have called him out on that, he probably would have said, see, I'm not sinning. It's not a sin. I'm just being thrifty, just being considerate for the poor. The first lure is always sin is no big deal. Judas thought that his sin was no big deal because he never confessed it to anyone else. He never told the other disciples, hey, I'm struggling with this. He never confessed his sin to Jesus, but instead he said that his sin was no big deal. Well, let's see how that played out for him. Early in the morning, all the chief priests made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. So Jesus was on trial, and he got a death sentence to be crucified. And as soon as Judas found out that Jesus got that death sentence, he was filled with remorse. And this word remorse here, it's different than the word repentance. Repentance is sorrow over sin, but also knowing that God can forgive you. But remorse is different. Remorse is just regret for your actions. So Judas thought to himself, I shouldn't have done that. And he felt bad about it. And the guilt set in. And he said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Now that Judas betrayed Jesus, he didn't feel like he could come back to Jesus. Instead, he went to the chief priest that gave him the money. And he came to them and said, I've sinned, I've done something wrong. And what did the religious leaders say? What's that matter to us? That's your problem now. They didn't help him at all. And in that wave of guilt, he did something terrible. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas let that guilt control him, manipulated him to think that God could never love him again. And in that mindset, he killed himself. So the first lure is that sin is no big deal. But then the second lure that comes is lure number two, that sin is the worst thing in the world. 
let's take those examples I previously gave you. So like someone who's struggling with pornography starts off by saying, it's no big deal, I'm just looking. But then as soon as you give in to that sin, Satan switches the dialogue and he says to you, how could you do that? You are so dirty. What about the person who drinks too much? You say, oh, lure one. I'm just having a fun time with my friends. But then you wake up the second day and there's lure number two. How could I have ever done that? I'm so awful. How could I do that? What about gossip? Lure number one. I'm just telling an amusing story, just having a good time with my friends. But then after you get caught, there comes lure number two. Everyone hates me. My friends hate me. And God must hate me now too. Do you see the strategy that Satan uses? It's a two-pronged attack. He tries to convince you that your sin is no big deal, but as soon as you give in to it, that's when he hits you with the second lure. And he hits you with so much guilt to make you feel so terrible that God could never forgive you. Last month, um, in California, they passed a new law that's uh, on every student ID from grade 7th grade to 12th grade, on the back of it needs to be printed the number of the suicide prevention hotline. And the reason why they did this is because there has been such a problem with suicide with young people in our country lately. So they figure if they put the number on the back of the student ID, that every single student will have a chance at least to be able to uh, call that number if they're having uh, these feelings. And the reason I tell you this story is just to show you how powerful guilt can be. Now, I'm not exactly sure what all goes into somebody who's suicidal. I know it's a complicated uh, uh, mental illness. But if you would have, could assume what the inner dialogue is of somebody struggling with that, what do you think that would be? Well, there would probably be some sense of hopelessness, thinking that your life's never going to get better. There's probably some guilt of something that you did wrong. There's probably a low self-esteem. Guilt is so powerful. It can manipulate people into doing so many terrible different things. And Satan knows that because he knew that guilt worked on Judas. And he knows that it's still working on people in our country today. So if you were Satan, what strategy would you use to destroy your faith? Would Satan need to switch up his strategy? Are you so strong from this attack that you figured it out already? Would he need to call an audible, call on something special to work on you? Or could he just use this attack? Could he convince you again and again that your sin is no big deal and then as soon as you commit that sin make you feel so terrible and awful afterwards that you think that God could never love you? I've seen this played out in my life hundreds of times where I do something where I don't really want to do it but before I do it I tell myself you know what I deserve this I earned this I'm just going to do this one more time and never again and then you know what happens? Then the guilt comes. And I kick myself for the whole next day because I fell into that sin again. I'm sure you've seen this played out in your life as well. It worked in Judas's life. He thought that his love of money was no big deal. But that led to him betraying Jesus. It led to him thinking that God could never love him again and committing suicide. And uh, one thing about suicide is that uh, suicide is not an automatic sentence to hell. I think some churches teach that, that suicide, if you commit suicide, you automatically get sent to hell. 
why do people get sent to hell? Well, it's unbelief, not knowing that Jesus is your Savior. And that's what Judas had in his heart this time. He didn't think that Jesus was his Savior. He thought he was so bad that Jesus could never forgive him. And in his unbelief, he killed himself. So that's why Judas went to hell, because of his unbelief. Suicide is a sin like all others and can be forgiven by God. I want you to know that. And what's the most heartbreaking part of the story is that Judas could have been forgiven. Judas could have been forgiven. Sure, he betrayed Jesus. He did a terrible thing. But you know who else betrayed Jesus that night? Well, Peter did. He denied knowing Jesus three times. And all the other disciples, they ran away. They betrayed Jesus too. And Jesus forgave them. And Jesus very easily could have forgiven Judas. Judas could have continued to be Jesus' disciple. But Judas didn't believe that. He thought that his sin was so bad that God could never love him again. Satan had a strategy that worked on Judas. But I need you to know that God also had a strategy to save you. Jesus came to this world and he never once was lured by one of Satan's temptations. He faced the temptations. Satan tried to get him to take the bait. But Jesus never once gave into it. And Judas knew that there needed to be a punishment for sin. And Judas decided to hang himself for that punishment. But Jesus knew that there needed to be a punishment for sin as well. And that's why he died on the cross, taking that punishment in our place. So if God were to ever look at the game tape of your life, you know what he would see? He would say, this person's never once did anything wrong. This person has never done any sins. You have never committed any sins. Because when I look at you, I don't look at you. I look at Jesus. That's the gospel message, knowing that God looks not at your sins and your failures. Instead, he looks at Jesus' perfect life. And when he sees you, he sees that perfect life that Jesus gives you. That was God's strategy to save you. And he brought people into your life so that you can know that message. He brought people into your life to walk you to the baptismal font and have your sins forgiven there. He brought people into your life to bring you to the church so that you could hear the gospel message. God had a strategy to save you so that you can know that message. There is a popular Christian author out there named Rebecca Pippert, and she wrote this book called Out of the Salt Shaker. It's one of those books that shows up a lot on like top 100 best Christian books out there. And uh, in this book, Rebecca tells a story about one time where she was giving a presentation, and everything was going great that day at the conference, until after her presentation was over, a young woman walked up to her with tears in her eyes. And she asked, hey, Rebecca, could we talk? And Rebecca said, okay. They found a quiet place. And uh, that's when uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from this book to tell you the story that happened. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she is now married, had been youth workers at a large conservative church. They were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. A few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered that she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been to admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. 
So we made the most excruciating decision I have ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in that church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride beaming in innocence. But you know what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think to myself was, you are a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. I know the Bible says that God forgives all our sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed the sin a thousand times, and I still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is how could I murder an innocent life? I took a deep breath and said what I was thinking. I don't know why you're so surprised. This isn't the first time that sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters and non-aborters. All of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent one who ever lived. Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus did have to, that he didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. The young woman stopped crying. Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becca? I came to you to say that I had done the worst thing imaginable, and you tell me that I have done something even worse than that. But if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I have ever imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing that any human can do is kill God's Son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? And from then on, that woman was free from her guilt. Do you understand this story? Each one of us is guilty of betraying Jesus and nailing him to that cross. All of our sins has done that. But there is no sin too big that God can't forgive. Jesus can forgive you of every single sin that you've committed. So in that state of mind, when you're feeling so guilty, don't let Satan whisper in your ear that God could never forgive you. Because Jesus forgives the sins of the whole world, including your sins. Satan has a strategy to destroy faith. But God had a strategy to save you. So let's walk in that joy and peace, knowing that Jesus forgives us. Let's walk in that joy, knowing that our consciences are unburdened, because when God looks at you, he sees someone who is forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.